read my phone. So, sounds kind of backwards, but um, so we're reading from Zechariah 8 today. And it says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, shall it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the host of the Lord was, of hosts was laid, and the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man, or any wage for beast, Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of these pe- this people to possess all these things. And as And as you have been a byword of cursing amongst the nations, O house of Judah and the house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposely, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of, the, of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the eighth of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat to the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat to the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days... Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you.
Kurt, I'm a pastor here at this church. Would you pray with me before we get into things this morning? Lord God, thank you for being jealous for us and being jealous for our attention. We praise you for gathering all nations together through faith in Jesus, where for eternity we will be your people and you will be our God. Help us to display your beautiful and attractive presence and character in our everyday lives, that people would take hold of us and say, we have heard that God is with you. Help me to speak your words today, not mine, for your glory and credit alone. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, here we go. The current sermon series uh, we are doing is from the book of Zechariah. The theme of it is, it gets better. And what the book of Zechariah is, it's a study in the art of demolishing discouragement, of saying no to spiritual lethargy, and saying yes to paying attention to God. It's really a study in how to get back on track with God when we've drifted spiritually, and that happens to us at times. More specifically, the title for today's message, based on the big passage that Ian read for us so well, uh, Zechariah chapter 8, the title for today is simply, The Promise of the Future. The Promise of a Better Future. It's the idea that it gets better. It gets better. Do you believe that? It gets better? In other words, we're talking about this idea of hope. Uh, Having hope in your life is a very powerful thing, and it's a very good thing for you to have. Think about this. I want you to think about this question. Have you ever met a happy, hopeless person? Have you ever met a happy, hopeless person? I think not, okay? It doesn't happen generally. So hope is a joy-inducing kind of thing to have. To explain this further, I want to share with you an article from Psychology Today that I looked at, and it was telling telling the readers the story of a couple that had been married for only 70 years, 7-0. Imagine being married... Maybe you can't imagine, or you don't want to imagine that. But anyhow, this they were happily married for 70 years, and here's their picture. It's amazing. But then sadly, inevitably, as time marches on, one of the spouses passed away. It was the husband. And how long do you think it takes before the wife also passes on in that circumstance? Six months? Several days? 14 hours. 14 hours. Now, this does not always happen, but it happened for them. And researchers have found that this doesn't happen across the board, uh, but it's a somewhat common thing for very long-time spouses to to pass away shortly after the other. And and it's because, uh, in particular, the surviving spouse who has left, that spouse just simply cannot imagine life without the other spouse. Uh, For them... When their spouse passes on, it's like all hope is gone. All hope, like why go on? Life for them is no longer worth living. And and very sadly, uh, that can become a self, you know, have you heard of the self-fulfilling prophecy? It's kind of a self-fulfilling kind of thing. And there's a, it's a syndrome, okay? There's a medical syndrome, and it's called broken heart syndrome when this occurs. Broken heart syndrome. By the way, this also applies to another scenario, and that happens to be mothers with children. And researchers, researchers have discovered that when a mother's child passes away, which is horrible, even as adults, by the way, not just as when they're kids, but when kids pass away, mothers in particular face a much higher risk of death soon after it is because of the broken heart syndrome. But by the way, as a side note, Does this not say a lot about dads? 
Like, is it because we're heartless fathers? I mean, do we not care when our kids, anyhow, that's bad to make a joke out of that, but anyhow. Uh, <laughs> let's, you know, basically, um, we need hope to keep on keeping on, right? To give life meaning. If we don't have hope, what's the point? What's the point? Additionally, uh, sorry, additional more and more doctors, doctors um, are discovering the medical benefits of having hope that the, uh, suffering patients and, and the difference it makes for them. Here's, in fact, one doctor who is named Jerome Groupman. He says, belief and expectation, the key elements of hope, belief and expectation, right? Key elements of hope can actually block pain by releasing the brain's endorphins and encephalins, mimicking the effects of morphine. So like, it's basically hope, having hope in your life, real substantive hope and believing it's going to happen. It's like taking morphine, okay? Hope is more powerful, I would argue, argue, than morphine. It can be the difference between life and death for you. And then Grootman talks about belief and expectation. These are the key elements of hope. And he's right. This kind of reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You're believing. And then it's the conviction of things not seen. And so this is why you need, I need, we need the promise of a better future. Okay? And God offers us this promise of a better future through His Son Jesus. And God calls us to respond to this promise with belief and with expectation. Confident expectation. His, that is promised in Jesus, it's going to happen, and through Him, it's, it will get better. It will get better. Interestingly, in our passage, there are no less, you see, Ian, when he read that passage, he read no less than ten clear promises from God for His people. I don't know if he caught them. We're not going to go through all ten, so don't worry. Uh, but there's no less than ten promises, and the reason that God lays out this comprehensive list of 10 promises here is because at that time, in and around 500 BC, uh, God's people were in captivity. Now they're back home, but they find themselves dogged with, with discouragement. They're hamstrung by hopelessness. And the best thing that sort of blows up this life-sapping discouragement and blows up hopelessness is to give people real, substantial, substantive, ultimate hope for the future. And that's what God does. Okay, they need help, and so God intervenes, sends Zechariah to, to basically light a fire under them. And if this is what God did for his people then, this is what God will do for his people today. Mercy Hill Church, that's you, that's us. And so if we have hope from God, we will no longer be beat down and dogged with this discouragement and with this hopelessness. Uh, let me quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said something that was quite profound. He said, we must accept finite disappointment Okay, meaning it's not going to last forever. Our, this life is a life of suffering, is it not? We must just accept that. Accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. That's what's going to drive us. Never lose hope because the God who gives us this real, substantive, true hope, He never fails to come through on His promises. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Alright, here's where we're going to go today. Firstly, we're going to look at God's emotional state that we see in this passage. Secondly, we're going to look at the big picture of what life is for. And thirdly, we're going to see how God calls us, His church family, to mobilize and then invite others into and be a part of God's big picture and purpose for life. So let's get started. I want to quickly summarize 
the first section of chapter 8, namely verses 1 to 3. And here's what we see God, He's speaking to Zechariah. Zechariah, his job description is a prophet of God. He is there to foretell God's messages to God's people. And God says to God's people through Zechariah, and I paraphrase, it's kind of like these words. He says, I am jealous for Zion. Zion, by the way, is code speak for the people of Israel, for God's people. Mount Zion to this very day is the mount, it's the hill on which ancient Jerusalem is built upon. Okay, so that's where that Zion piece comes from. And then God says to them, look, I am jealous for my people. I'm jealous for you. And I'm not jealous for you with just a tiny little bit of jealousy. I am jealous with, for you with, with great jealousy. Interestingly, I've mentioned this before. The hard part about preaching at one place for about 13 years is you start repeating your illustrations. And I think I've shared this multiple times, so bear with me. Uh, but if you haven't heard this, this will be just amazing for you. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, let's talk about Oprah Winfrey. And she's been quoted as saying you know, that the one biblical truth that she struggled with and that caused her to take a different direction with her faith in Christ, um, and basically she decided, you know what, I'm going to throw away what the Bible says and throw away that the Bible is ultimate truth. Um, and it, you know what the truth was? The, the, the piece of Scripture that she read, that she argued with, is when God says, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. And she struggled with that. Why did she struggle with that piece, that God is a jealous God? Well, it seemed like, well, if God is a jealous God, you know, it's, it sounds like he's emotionally unhinged. Like, you know, it sounds like God's like your crazy uncle, just like, you know, emotionally irresponsible and can't keep his motions together. You know, it's almost like she believed it's like God's having a temper tantrum, you know, because his people can't get in line and, and toe the line and, and just obey. So then he's angry. OK, so Winfrey rejects this idea that God is a jealous God. She's like, no, no, he's not. So is she right? Is she correct to believe this? That, you know, this is not what the God of the Bible is like? Well, no, she's not right. She's not right. The reason God is jealous for his people, it's not because he's emotionally unhinged or immature. It's, it's because he loves his people deeply and truly and immeasurably. Ephesians talks about the immeasure, immeasurable love of God for his people. That's why he sent Jesus, right? And as you see, it's, this, it's deep, this true, immeasurable love. It drives God. It's the motivation for God to never give up on his people. His love keeps driving him to, to keep pursuing and keep running after us. After we're his kids, he's our heavenly father. And you know what we often do? We keep running into traffic. And he keeps running after us, trying to save us from ourselves. You see, back in Zechariah's day, as I mentioned, in and around 500 B.C., well, God's people had lost their way. They had drifted spiritually. They were running into traffic, so to speak, okay? And the way in which they were running into traffic was because they stopped listening to God. They, they didn't pay God much of any attention anymore. They stopped praying, and they stopped listening to Scripture and listening to Bible teaching, and therefore they were not obeying God. God was not on the radar anymore. And they decided in that moment of spiritual drift... We're going to pursue other God, God replacements, fake gods. And sadly, these fake gods and God replacements could not give them what only God could give them. And so they were blowing up their lives with sin and rebellion against God. And here's God. He's watching this happen. And like a jealous lover, 
I don't know if anybody's been jealous for you, a lover or something like that, but like a jealous lover, again, God, he's running after his people time and time and time. Come back to me. I want, I want you. Do you want me? I want you to want me, as the song says. Do you want me? He does. He wants you. He wants us. And in Zechariah's day, we see that it's actually the Lord's jealousy for his people that drives him to, re- to, to return to Zion with his people, to have the temple of the Lord rebuilt at that time, so that the presence of God, the, what is known as the Shekinah glory, which is in the Holy of Holies, that's where God was and dwelt in his temples. He wanted to be there to return and be among his people again, and so that they can love Him again and serve God again and worship Him again in relationship. And this relationship between God and His people, it's back together again. Things are good when God and His people are back together again. And in God's case, Winfrey was wrong. Jealousy in God's case is a wonderful thing. Had God not been jealous for you or for us or for His people then, He would not have run after us, pursued us. And that leads us to point number one in our notes. There's only three points today. And number one is simply, the Lord is greatly jealous for our attention. In like manner, He is jealous for our attention. He is, let's get more specific, He's jealous for you. He is jealous for you and He does not want to share your divine loyalty with any other false God or God replacement. He wants wants you and He he wants to be your one and only God. Your one and only God. Let me try to explain this further. I want to talk about teenagers. and Maybe I'm talking more about teenagers these days because I have two of them, okay? Uh, and then they're great kids. But something that happens, I'm not saying this happens in my teenagers yet at this stage, uh, but what happens, can happen in teenagers, is before they become teenagers, before the teen years, Generally, they tend to idolize mom and dad. They, mom can do no wrong. Dad is the best. I want to spend as much time with my parents just hanging out with mommy and daddy. I crave playtime with mom and with dad. I want that. But then the teen years come. And, and what happens, not just physiological changes, but mental. the brain is ex- rapidly expanding in the te- teen years. And as such, they become more independent, more on their own, more their own person. And a teenager's friends tend to become more important. If you're a teenager, those friends of yours tend to often, wrongly, become more important to you than your family. They can dangerously become way more important than mom or dad. I know for me, so this is the mistake I made uh, as a teen. Once I purchased my own motorcycle at age 16, why my parents allowed me to do that, by the way, I have no idea. But it was a Suzuki GS400T for touring, and I loved that motorcycle. But anyhow, once I got on that motorcycle, though, it was like, I'm out of here. I wanted to spend as little time as possible at home. Instead, where was I? With my friends. I wanted to spend as much time with my friends, as little time as possible with my family, with my parents. Now, why did I not want to spend time with mom and dad? It's because at that time, I thought they were boring, they they were older, there was a disconnect, I didn't understand them, Uh, I found them annoying, I'm sure that they certainly found me annoying. They cramped my style, you see, and they didn't necessarily want to give me as much freedom as I wanted. 
On the other hand, my friends, they got me. They understood. And they were fun. And I could talk with my friends for hours at a time. And as a teen, friends were where it was at for me. Love my friends. But the problem is, my parents, how do you think they felt about my absence? Not crazy about that. Not good about that. My mom in particular was particularly edgy about this change. And she thought I was doing the worst horrible, immoral things uh, that I should not be doing. And in reality, I was not. Anyhow, but that's an, I'll talk to her in heaven about that down the road. It wasn't as bad. I wasn't as bad as she thought I was, okay? <laughs> but parents, we think the worst. And, and it's because we love our kids. But anyhow, you see, in a sense, my parents, you know what they were? Jealous for my attention. They did not appreciate my absence and my drift, spiritual drift, if you will, or family drift. They did not like that I valued my friends more than I valued mom and dad. And my parents were really edgy during this time. It was, it was a kind of a rough time. But let me ask you this. Were my parents right and correct to be ticked off? Yes. Being a parent myself, I, I get it now. This is God's sense of humor. You know, if you're a rebellious teen, he gives you lots of kids, okay? And sometimes they're more rebellious than you were. And God's like, ha, 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 you know, that sometimes. I, I should not assume what God does, but anyhow, that's a pattern I've seen now, now and again. But anyhow, I'm sure mom and dad at that time, when I was away from them, they said, Kurt, look, I mean, we brought you into the world. We're your mom and dad. We've been feeding and, and housing and raising you for years. We've loved you as our own. We, we, and now you treat us like the plague. Like you don't want anything to do with us. You see where I'm going on this? God's people, we do have done the same thing with God, with our Heavenly Father, our ultimate parent. God made and formed us in our mother's womb and He shaped us. He created us in His own image. He has provided generously for our needs and given us food, clothing, uh, families to raise us. Then He's given us talents and, and skills to, to work jobs, to earn money, make a living. So that's across the board, Christian or not. And then best of all, God makes a way possible for us to know Him, to have our sins forgiven, to, to be given a, a promised future that is mind-blowing, to have this relationship with God forevermore. And the way in which He makes this relationship with God possible is He sent 2,000 years ago His one and only Son. Jesus takes a self-demotion of the greatest possible kind leaves heaven, becomes the God-man for us, then lives our perfect life in our place because we could not live perfectly. Then Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. So all of my sins and yours were placed upon Jesus at the cross. And then Jesus was judged with death for us as our substitute. Why? 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 To save us and to give us a better future. And even still... You know, if you've experienced this like I have, as a Christian, we're placing our faith and trust in Jesus, and still we're prone to, to drift spiritually at times. We're prone to wander, as the song says. Sometimes, I know myself, my heart starts looking to other false gods for ultimate joy and meaning. You know, things, I look to sports too much a lot of the time. I look to food, certainly, too much a lot of the time. I look to fishing and cars and and family to, to give me the ultimate joy that only God can give. 
and I, I begin running after some of these God replacements to, to maybe I can find satisfaction, soul satisfaction in this. And, I, and, and I'm wrong to, to believe that because, again, only my Heavenly Father can give me the soul satisfaction that I, that I need. And He's ready to give it. That's the thing. It's not as if He's like chintzy and not wanting to give the satisfaction. It's there. He's like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. What are you waiting for? And when this divided loyalty happens within, what does God feel for, for me and for you? What does He feel for His people? What does He feel for Mercy Hill Church if we're drifting? He feels jealousy. And not just this much. We're talking great jealousy here. He does not want to share you. That's a message from God, by the way. That might have been my phone. Oh, dear. But He feels this great jealousy because He doesn't want to share you with any other God, false God. You mean, you mean too much to Him. Do you believe this, by the way? But you mean too much to Him for Him to not feel anything at all when He sees you wandering off over here, over there, over every, anywhere but Him. You mean too much to Him for Him to feel nothing. He's jealous for you. Let the, so here's, let me just land the plane on this point number one. So you ready for this? Let the knowledge, the truth that your heavenly Father loves you deeply, truly, immeasurably, let the knowledge that His great love for you uh, leads Him to become greatly jealous for you when you drift, use that knowledge to, to help you, to cause you to stay more faithful and true to Him, to commit to keep paying attention to Him every day of your life with your time, treasures, and your talent. It's what you were made for. This is the best thing for you. He knows it's the best thing for you. And the only way... He is your only option for you to experience this ongoing, consistent, uh, everyday soul satisfaction that He offers. Okay, got to keep keep pursuing Him, keep pursuing Him, keep pursuing Him. Stay faithful to Him, and the payoff is this soul satisfaction, this relationship with Him. Let's transition now. I'm going to look to the next section. Uh, we're going to look quickly in an overview kind of way, uh, verses four to eight. And in verses 4 to 8, if you have that in front of you, God is giving Zechariah a prophecy about the future, this prophecy of a better future for God's people. And as I've mentioned, you know, things have been rough for God's people for quite some time. Uh, most of the nation uh, was carted off. Uh, the, the, the northern ten tribes of Israel in and around 700 B.C., they were conquered by these horrific, warlike, violent uh, nation called Assyria. And then through violence and through death and, and then cultural assimilation, basically they just disappeared into nothingness. Then 200 years later, what was left of Israel in the south, well, they were defeated and then they were carted off to Babylon uh, where they were uh, living as captives for 70 years. Over these 70 years, God's people cry out with, with prayer and with fasting. God hears their prayers, hears their fasting, responds. He's like, okay, I'll let you go back now. And then he allows them to go back to their homeland. So they come home. Everything's fantastic, right? They're excited. They're thrilled. But then soon, shortly thereafter, it becomes apparent, man, rebuilding our nation from the ashes, that's hard. This is very difficult stuff. And what, what, what is their response after things get hard for a while? Well, they're drifting spiritually again. They give up on God, essentially. They give up on the dream of trying to rebuild their nations or rebuild the temple of the, the, of the Lord. Basically, the dream is dead. But is the dream dead? 
It's not. He lights a fire. How does he light a fire? God lights a fire under, under his people with Zechariah, with this prophet of God, and basically says, you guys got to get back to work. Don't give up on this promised future. And part of what catalyzes them and energizes them is this, this idea that things will get better. All right? It will get better. And he says, look, the elderly will be will again sit peacefully in the streets, signifying that, look, if there's elderly people there in that city, well, things have been going well for quite some time. There hasn't been war in quite some time. That's why there's elderly people around. That's a good sign of peace. All right? Then kids will be playing in the streets, he says, signifying Jerusalem will be a place of stability and joy again. If you look at certain cities in Syria uh, during this time of war that they've been enduring, there's, there's no kids anywhere. It's not a safe place in the streets anymore. So if you see kids playing in the street, that's a safe and stable place to be. And this is what God promised. That's how, how life will be again in Jer Jerusalem that God promises. Then God promises that he will bring his scattered people who have not yet returned from the west and also from the east and come back to this city. Why? He wants them to come back to Jerusalem so they would be saved, so that he can preserve them, and that they can become his people. And then he will be their faithful and righteous, life-giving God. Very quickly here. As I've mentioned before in this series, this is the technical part, so bear with me in this technical part. I've mentioned this time and again. But it applies to this passage yet again. Very often with prophecies from God in Scripture, there's two elements. There's a partial fulfillment aspect and a total fulfillment aspect. In other words, there's a shorter term aspect to this, what's going to happen. So it's going to happen in the coming years or decades. Or it might happen thousands of years down the road. Short term, long term aspect to these prophecies. And the shorter term aspect of this prophecy is, well, sure enough, in the coming years and decades, do you think the elderly were sitting in the streets? Yes. Do you think the kids were playing in the streets? Yes. Thanks be to God, He promises them a, a short-term better future. So there was a time of peace and prosperity, and the temple was rebuilt. God's presence returned there. Everything was, was pretty, pretty amazing. So that was the short-term aspect of that prophecy. It happened. But then the longer-term aspect of this prophecy points to a future that this is now for us. That if you're trusting in Jesus, what God is describing here is a sneak preview of what our future will be like in the new city of God, the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. And in this place, God will gather people from all nations, from all quarters of the planet, and they will be saved in and through His Son, Jesus, and then we will enjoy an eternity with God. We will be His people. He will be our God. This will be a perfect place in which for us to, to really live. And that points us to number two in our notes. God is in the process of gathering His people to Himself to be saved, where we will be His people and He will be our God. You know, this, this point really encapsulates what life is for. If you're feeling like, I don't know what life is for, there's not much or any meaning right now, well, I'm saying, pay attention. Like, here it is. Here's what life is all about. Here is what human history is moving towards. This is the climax, you see. This is what it's all building up towards. I want to ask you now, how is your life today being lived that reflects that this is what it's for? How is your life, so in other words, how is your life, how is my life reflecting this promised future that is coming?
How is it being reflected in your life now, here, today? Uh, right now, as I shift gears a bit, I want to talk about uh, briefly a book. This is a good book. One of my, my, my second favorite author after God is a man by the uh, name of Paul David Tripp. He's got a fantastic mustache, and uh, he's a very wise, very smart guy. And uh, there's a book that I'm reading. I just, it just uh, came up. I only buy cheap books, by the way, through Kindle. It was on sale for $1 or $2. I, I refuse to pay much more than that. Uh, but anyhow, there's a book that came out for that price, and it's called Forever. And it says, uh, Why You Can't Live Without It. And this is a pretty awesome book thus far, but very challenging for me. And in the book, he talks about a particular household. Uh, this is a true story, true scenario. And this household, uh, the, the man in the, the husband in the family is named Jack. And Jack, he finds himself in a situation, this, maybe you can relate. He is swimming in debt. Okay, tons of debt in his life, financial debt. And this debt just keeps growing year after year after year after year. So it's not getting any better. Tons of debt. And Jack's issue now uh, is not that he's not making enough money. He actually makes very good money in his job. He's got a good job, pays well. You see, the problem, though, is he and his wife, they own a home that is bigger than it needs to be. In fact, he's been making improvements to it as well. There's now a permanent swimming pool that he had installed in the backyard. He, he just had to have that, just had to have that pool. Uh, and then he decided, you know what, I need, I need to have a high-end, newly renovated man cave with all the best toys and trinkets. Okay, i got to have that. And then he decided, I just have to have this high-end vacation home. Uh, the price is right, and it's a good investment. Okay, so we're going to get that. Now, here's the problem. After financial decision, after the next one, everything's maxed out. So his, his, uh, the debt he can carry is, is, has reached the limit. So all the cards are maxed out, lines of credit maxed out, bank account empty most of the time. I mean, the, the paycheck comes in and all the bills get paid and it's gone. And Jack cringes. You know when he cringes? His, his wife is headed to go shopping to Costco. And she's about to go to Costco, and she normally uses the debit card, okay, because, you know, he's somehow manipulated her to not use the credit card for shopping. You know, use the debit card. I can control that. So she's on her way to Costco to buy groceries with the debit card, and he is paranoid. He is quite certain the day has come. She's going to go there, and the debit card is going to be rejected. And finally, only then will, the, will his wife discover just how bad things truly are. So I, let, let me ask you, I want you to play the hat of financial advisor. Imagine yourself as a financial advisor. How would you diagnose what is wrong in Jack's life? Would you say poor money management? You would be right. Would you say poor communicator with his wife? Husbands, we're never poor communicators, are we? Okay. You would be right. He's obviously a poor communicator with his wife. Would you say he's allowed his desire for nice things to get way out of hand? Yes, you would be right. But you know what the real heart issue is with Jack? He's got, and this is a Paul David Tripp-ism, eternity amnesia. He's forgotten what life is for. He's trying to make heaven on earth. 
before getting to heaven. He's forgotten. Heaven is not here yet. He's forgotten. No, you got to build your life in such a way that eternity's ahead of you. Like there it is. And you're always working with God's help and power and with Scripture's help and, and wisdom, keeping heaven and eternity in front of you. Heaven's not yet. And that's how you build your life accordingly. And so you build your life in such a way that you've got new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem in your sight. And that changes how you spend money, man. And tragically now, Jack, he's in a financial pickle. He can't give anything to the purposes of God. He can't give much of anything to his local church. In fact, he hasn't been able to give much of anything for years. And, you know, he's just not able to be generous to other causes inside and outside of the local church to help more people be helped and maybe come to the Lord by way of the local church. He can't help much of any humanitarian causes. Why? He's lost sight. He's forgotten about what life is for. And so my challenge to you is simply, is your life engineered in such a way that you've got eternity in view? Are you living as frugally as you can so that you can maximize living a generous lifestyle towards Jesus and other people and with a viewpoint of helping others grow into the likeness of Jesus? And so what needs to change? What needs to change with Christ's help? Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to quickly summarize. You know, this is a long chapter. We can't deal with all these ten promises, uh, but I want to basically look at now, verses 20 to 23 in summary. And really, these verses, it is so beautiful. I was, I was just sort of breathtaking by them. It is clear that God has the distant future in mind when he shares this prophecy through Zechariah. And what he shares is simply this. There's going to be a lot of people from a lot of cities and nations from every tongue and tribe all these people globally, they desire to receive favor and grace from the Lord. They, they desire to seek Him. They want Him. And verse 23 has an interesting turn of phrase, and I think it's on the screen. It's, it says, The nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. They want in. They want in on God and His promises. So when the nations, they see a Jew. So imagine them just traveling along. Oh, they see a Jew. They, that obviously, it's someone who belongs to God. He is part of God's people. And they hold on to Him. Why? Because they see that, that they can take Him to God's kingdom and lead Him to God. And that leads us to number three in our notes, simply this. Let's be people for whom the nations, they see us and they take hold of us, if you will. Because they see that God is in our lives. God is with us as a church family. And they want what we have. They want the God that we follow. For the sake of time, and I've got to leave it here, I'm going to try to finish somewhat strongly here on this point. The point is, look at all the promises that God has given to His people in Christ if they would just trust in Him. Again, He's a jealous God. And He's saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Look, look at all I've given you. Just trust in Me. And as Christians, as a church family, we are the recipients of these amazing, mind-blowing promises from God. 
And, and if God has given us so much, how dare we keep these promises to ourselves? May the people in your workplace and mine, and in your, on your street and mine, in your extended family and mine, may all these people see God is, is with us and with you and in you. Because if they see God in you, and they see evidence of that, by how you talk, by how you love, by the things that you do, they will want what you have. And then your opportunity in that moment, when they recognize there's something about you that's different, it's actually kind of good. What, what's your secret, man? Uh, well, you, that's your opportunity. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. You don't have to do it in a weird, preachy, Bible-thumping way. Just speak about Jesus in some way at the very least. Something about Jesus and what he's done. Talk about the cross. Talk, if nothing else, talk about the cross and his resurrection. So you share the gospel. You can say, hey, come to our church. You know, come, come, just come. It's a pretty casual place, but come. Okay, just come, come to church. Come to our community group. Basically, just be available to those people in your life whom you are sensing, they, they, they're interested. They're interested in Christ. They want more. They want meaning. They want hope. That's our opportunity. And what an opportunity God has given us to partner with him in his mission. So we're a family on mission working together to reach our city for Christ. What a mission. And so that's my challenge. Let us not give up on the mission. Let us not forget what the mission is. Let us mobilize and ask God to give us the help and the strength and the boldness to pursue that mission. Let's pray together. So, Lord, we need your help. Very often, we are afraid to share our faith. We don't want to. We don't want to receive the hostility that might be there in sharing our faith. It, it's risky. There's all kinds of excuses, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would be bold people, that we would courageously, respectfully, and gently share Christ with those in our life who need him, who are not yet Christians, our coworkers, our neighbors, our family members, our extended family members, empower us with courage and boldness, with love to reach out to them that we would not keep all these vast promises to ourselves. So break our hearts for lost people that it would lead to action. Lord, we're grateful that all these promises that you've given us to us come through Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done to earn salvation for us, to earn these promises on our behalf and to make them possible for us. So we come to you at this time of the Lord's table to remember and celebrate uh, all that you've done for us and to confess our sins to you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So now we're going to transition and respond to God's word in three ways. We're going to worship God with a couple more songs a little later. We're going to take up an offering, which is our way of giving back to God a portion of our income to help even more people meet Jesus, be transformed by him. And then now we're going to participate in the taking of the Lord's Supper. And we're a church that does this each and every Sunday to remember and celebrate all that Christ has given to us. And we invite any and all Christians to take this meal. It's a memorial meal, uh, a cross meal, if you will. To And we invite any and all Christians to take this meal with us. And so some servers will come to you with some crackers representing the broken body of Jesus. The juice represents the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to make you clean in the sight of God. Let me quickly read uh, Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. It says, to sort of get us in the mindset of communion, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So with that, I'll turn it over to the servers and to the worship team.